episode 258, Areas of Promise. Today, I speak with seven healthcare thought leaders. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, seven thought leaders talk about the areas of promise they see in healthcare in 2020. Seven thought leaders includes Kimberly Noel, MD from Stony Brook Medicine, Eric Weaver from Innovista Health Solutions, Suzanne Delbanco from Catalyst for Payment Reform, Sue Shade, Starbridge Advisors. We have Naomi Freed from Health Innovation Strategies, Joe Grundy from Grundy Consulting, and last but not least, Adrian Rubstein from Merck. Just a couple of comments up front here. I don't want to further my reputation for dropping major spoilers, however, so I'll keep this short. Many of the thought leaders today talk about AI in various contexts. Are you rolling your eyes right now? If so, let me remind everyone about the Garner hype cycle. The first step is wild-eyed enthusiasm. The next step in the hype cycle is anger, the old trough of disillusionment. I'd suggest that as far as AI is concerned, we are coming out of that trough and AI, be it artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence or machine learning or deep learning or whatever you choose to call it, it is being used for reals for various applications. Other corroborations amongst our thought leaders include the importance of exalting primary care in the form of what some may call direct primary care and Zeev New Earth calls complex condition care or condition-specific care, a relationship model, if you will. Another idea that comes up in various ways is the idea of breaking down silos and getting everyone with a stake in patient health to the table and focused on achieving better patient outcomes using all the technology and wherewithal available to us in 2020. By all the stakeholders, I mean going beyond the usual suspects of providers and insurance carriers, meaning employers, and also meaning pharma in the sense of pharma taking the opportunity to collaborate more deeply toward outcomes their medications can potentially confer, IRL, with RWE. (laughs) My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Hi, my name is Dr. Kimberly Noel, and I am from Stony Brook Medicine. I am the Deputy Chief Medical Information Officer and the Telehealth Director, as well as the Chief Quality Officer of the Patient-Centered Medical Home in Family Medicine. I feel like an area of promise in healthcare is an advocacy for inclusive innovation. And by that, I mean that there are populations of people, patients, in my case, being a doctor, that need to be represented when we're talking about innovations. We have always known that there are people who, whose voice hasn't been included due to either mobility issues, disabilities, or cognitive issues. And the onus for physicians is to advocate for those who have special needs. And I think in terms of where we are with telehealth and artificial intelligence and the rapid technological boom that we're experiencing, we need to see and advocate for developments for this population. I see some really interesting things happening in the rehabilitation space, whether it's using robotics or assistive devices, 
And just by default of telehealth, it's connecting doctors to patients wherever the patients are. So that's what I think is most important. Really, I would say that this is an area of promise because of the advent of artificial intelligence, right? We have this ability to use data to either predict outcomes or to steer resources. That kind of ability raises sometimes fears of what is the impact. If we automate jobs and we allocate resources using a non-human mean, what does that mean for those who are going to be replaced, you know, or if scarcity is created? And so the zeitgeist comes from a general awareness that the use of some technologies will require an ethical oversight and regulation in order for there not to be huge disparities. And so an extension of that is thinking of who is most likely to be disadvantaged. And that is known historically. And I think that's either people who are facing social determinant economic barriers to entry at a seat at the table or mobility issues and other disabilities that prevent them from being able to advocate for themselves. This is why it's an area of promise today because we're at a critical moment in which the technology can either be a great democratizing power and equalizing access to healthcare, or it can worsen the divide. My name is Eric Weaver, Vice President of Strategy and Transformation at InnoVista Health Solutions. I'm on the leading edge of primary care transformation and work with physicians all over the country in new value-based care models. First area that I feel holds the most promise in healthcare for the future is relationship-driven, team-based, integrated primary care. I just think there's a great advancement in the field of primary care right now, being spearheaded by groups that are well-capitalized and enabled by technology and analytics. For example, there's a small growing number of physician-operated relationship-based primary care clinics operated by Iowa Health, ChinMed, Oak Street Health, and others that are really showing that you can save money and have impressive results in reducing avoidable care and risk. I see these types of value-based care, primary care models being more and more predominant in the upcoming year for three main reasons, Stacy, First and foremost, these types of primary care models are showing outstanding results, things such as being able to reduce hospitalizations by 40%, improving patient-reported outcomes, having net promoter scores in the 90s. Secondarily, the system's already moving towards value-based care, delivery, and relationship-based patient-centered primary care is well-positioned to be a sustainable, disruptive innovation in this newly evolving payment landscape. Lastly, the amount of capital being poured into the health sector right now and the velocity to which it's being deployed is showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon. This last year, we had $60 billion in private equity healthcare deals, and over half of that capital was being deployed in the provider sector. So investors are clearly focused on behavioral health, retail care delivery, and primary care that can improve outcomes and address social determinants. So I know there's a lot of skeptics out there that are saying, you know, value-based care delivery, you know, we've heard that, you know, where's the industry going? You know, we're constantly being asked to sit in these two canoes and, you know, where's the tipping point? And I really think the tipping point is going to be in the advancement of policies that are really going to, you know, force the hand. You never want to bet against the House. And I think clearly the House, i.e. the federal government, is clearly committed and has a path towards value-based care. And I think beyond just 
primary care, you know, driving, you know, a transition towards improved outcomes and showing a, a proof of concept and being able to succeed in this new model. I also think artificial intelligence is going to be another trend that's going to really allow us to, you know, empirically show outcomes. I think groups that are going to be successful in 2020 and beyond are really going to be able to build systems of intelligence to be successful. I mean, it's not going to be long, I think, until we have AI really getting out in front of patients, predicting who's going to be the most likely to end up in the ER because they can't, they aren't seeing the doctor enough. There's enough data out there to figure out someone's eating habits, social habits. It's just a matter of harnessing it. And they're really allowing for the dots to be connected via interoperability. Your phone, the electronic health record, wearable devices, all of this can be eventually tied together. And I think in the example of primary care, we can now incorporate social determinants such as housing stability, transportation, and access to adequate nutrition as a risk prediction for exacerbation of chronic disease and eventual risk of hospitalization. I really think the transformative potential of AI is in its power to enhance the human aspect of medicine, which is something that I think we've lost. And I think we're going to continue to see that in the upcoming year and beyond, that we can really personalize care interventions and create a more patient-centered system of care, something that I think we can all see, touch, and feel, and obviously see in terms of uh, lowering costs and improving outcomes in the industry. If I was an early careerist right now or someone even looking for a career transition and, and really eyeing an opportunity for the future of healthcare, I'd be looking at companies that are trying to address analytics and predictive modeling or you know, leveraging a machine learning or AI-enabled application. I would be thinking about a startup company that's really focused on population health, a company that can empirically show that you can improve outcomes and predict which patients are going to require additional care from care teams. I think data scientists are going to be more and more involved in healthcare organizations generally, looking at ways to build predictive models that can impact the organization. I think ACO and value-based providers are really going to be involved in continuing to scale and investing significant amounts of capital and in artificial intelligence. And I think there are startup companies out there. Closed loop AI is one group that comes to mind that's really showing you know, great outcomes with its clients, such as Medical Home Network or Oak Street Health. I'm very encouraged by seeing, you know, how this technology ecosystem is really evolving towards really harnessing an AI model that's really not only going to improve patient outcomes, but ultimately, I think the provider experience really allowing physicians to focus on the humanity of the patient and really speaking to, I think, the altruistic reason for why they got into healthcare in the first place, which was to improve the lives of patients to which, you know, they care for. I'm Suzanne Dalbanco. I'm executive director of Catalyst for Payment Reform, otherwise known as CPR. And Catalyst for Payment Reform is a nonprofit organization that works on behalf of employers and other big purchasers of healthcare to help them get better value for their healthcare dollar. When I look ahead to 2020, I think an area of promise is that employers and other healthcare purchasers are really starting to put their hands on the steering wheel and thinking about how they can make the healthcare system work better for them. While that might sound self-serving on their behalf, of course, you know, a huge number of Americans get their healthcare through their employer. 
So I think it's something good for, for many of us. By putting their hands on the steering wheel, I mean looking at ways to procure high-value healthcare services for the members of their population in sometimes non-traditional ways. So rather than relying on their major health plans to deliver that, they might be contracting directly with a major provider that serves a lot of their people and making sure that quality metrics are met and the patient experience is better and access is easier. Or they might be carving out a particular episode of care like hip replacements and finding providers who are really excellent at that and improving the experience. There's even you know, use of virtual forms of healthcare that can expand access and meet the needs of people who are comfortable with that kind of platform. So when employers put their hands on the steering wheel and try to make the healthcare system more responsive of those who use and pay for healthcare, I think we're all going to be better off. If I were starting my career right now or looking to make a major change, I would probably not look to work for a major health insurance company or a major benefit consulting firm. Although, you know, there's always innovation happening within those firms, I would look to the fringes where there are companies trying to meet needs that are not the broad-based needs that employers and other healthcare purchasers have, like contracting with providers and processing claims and you know making decisions about which health plan to use next year. I would be drawn to alternative third-party administrators that are trying to sort of surgically pick high-value provider networks that can meet the needs of a given population, but eliminate those high cost or poor quality providers. I would be looking to work on behalf of companies that are creating on-site or near-site clinics for employers and finding ways to help employers not only expand access to primary care, but also to make more thoughtful referrals to specialists in the community, focusing on those that are high quality, lower cost, I would be looking to work for an independent entrepreneurial vendor that is negotiating with healthcare providers for them to accept new forms of payment like bundled payment where they get paid a package price for an episode of care and are held responsible for any overspending and then you know bringing that offering to employers to enable them to carve out certain services where they're paying a lot right now but getting very uneven value from the healthcare system. When I think about employers taking things into their own hands in this new era, one of the key ingredients they need to do that is really good data. And not just data, but data that are brought together in a way that can provide the insights they need to manage their population's health and also to figure out if the healthcare strategies they've put into place are working. An example might be, you know, we're all hearing in the news about the burden of substance use disorders in this country. And if you're an employer and you're only looking at your medical claims data, you know, you're not going to have a good understanding of the burden of substance use disorders in, in the members of your population. You need to marry that with not just pharmacy data, but also data about absenteeism, as an example. So, you know, if, if people don't show up to work on the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday, there's a high likelihood they overdid it the day before. And if you know that, then you can perhaps target that person with some information about services that are available to them. So data is, is the glue that's going to make some of these you know, cutting-edge strategies really work 
and there's lots of ways for employers to integrate it, but that's going to be really high on their list of priorities. Based on that, I think any companies and technologies that are enabling employers to not just see their own data, but also to integrate that data in meaningful ways are going to be a critical ingredient and you know hold a lot of promise for what we might be able to accomplish in the next decade. My name is Sue Shade. I'm a principal with Starbridge Advisors. We are a health IT advisory firm providing interim management, high-level advisory services to healthcare organizations. Areas of promise that I see going forward, and I'm going to take an approach that's more uh, the practitioner in me. So first off, I would comment about electronic health records, which obviously are table stakes, but I think the focus on fully leveraging the functionality that is in those tools is still future for many healthcare organizations. There's so much possible that they are not leveraging from specialty areas to nursing to physicians to ambulatory. The other thing that I would say is physician burnout. And I think this is going to be with us until we do something radically different. Physicians, I'll say clinician burnout. It's not just, I think, about physicians. We absolutely have to find ways to make these systems simpler, less clicks for our physicians so they are not doing what they call pajama time. And uh, while this is not new news, it's old news, I think it's something that's still ahead of us to address. So that's one whole area. Another area I'd comment on is patient engagement, consumer engagement, the patient experience, the patient journey, whatever you want to describe it as, digital health and everything that comes with that. I think that there are a few leading organizations in the country that have really done some exciting things. And I think many organizations are just not there yet. They're starting down that path. They may be doing disparate, not disparate, but they may be doing very siloed, separate kinds of initiatives within their organizations, but they really need to bring it together strategically with a focus on the patient. And this is where you see patient experience officers, you know, one of the new roles that's probably happening in many organizations. So I think you have to approach all of these from a partnership between digital, IT, and operations. And when you don't, you're going to find the gaps. You're going to fall further behind. When we talk about promising areas, it's hard necessarily to view this as a promising area, but I think that with so many provider organizations having focused on their EHRs in the recent years, there's a big focus and, and pivot, if you will, for many organizations to the ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning. And those solutions have obviously advanced over the years. They aren't what they used to be. And there is a lot of opportunity for organizations, I think, to streamline their work and take costs out if they really do that right. So I think that's an area of focus, whether it's promising or not, that a lot of provider organizations are pursuing. The last thing I would say is an area of promise, and that's AI, artificial intelligence. And I think that in healthcare, it may still be early. There may be a level of hype. I don't know about the Gartner hype cycle on that at this point. But it's promising. There's no question it's promising. I did come in contact with an organization, relatively new organization in the recent period that is using AI to go against structured and unstructured data, EHR and beyond, to identify variation in clinical outcomes and then surface from that data recommendations on what organizations can do to address those gaps. And I mean, that's just one concrete example where I think the use of AI, especially in terms of clinical outcomes and clinical transformation is really quite promising at this point. 
This is Naomi Freed. I'm the founder and CEO of Health Innovation Strategies. We're a boutique healthcare consulting firm specializing in digital health strategy and innovation program design and optimization. 2020 is going to be a very interesting year in digital health. And I'd like to share with you my expectations in two different areas. First of all, digital health developments from the pharma perspective. Second of all, what I expect to see from digital health startups. So first of all, looking at digital health development through the lens of pharma. Just taking a step back for a minute, 2019 was really, I think, a year of growing pains for pharma in terms of digital health and digital health relationships. We saw Onduo lose the backing of Sanofi. Sanofi invested $500 million along with Google to try to set up this digital health diabetes company. And we also saw Novartis separate from Pair Therapeutics. And when that deal was first done, we were all really excited to see a big pharma engaging directly with a digital health startup. So I think what we're starting to see is a recognition that the field is expansive, that there's a lot of opportunities still in digital health, but it's going to be important to really find the best ideas. I think that 2019 in some ways was a turning point for large pharma to start to recognize a new way to engage with uh, digital health startups. Looking ahead to 2020, we're going to see a lot more pharma engagement with the digital health community through online challenges as a way to source ideas, but also to begin to more directly engage with startups. When thinking about what career opportunities, career opportunity implications are from seeing pharma more directly engage with digital health startups through online challenges, I think we will see more folks inside of pharma that are becoming aware of digital health and We'll see pharma begin to build more infrastructure to work with digital health startups. And from the startup perspective, they're going to need some extra resources to engage with pharma. So I think that there may be some more career opportunities for folks in digital health to work on relationships with pharma, to liaise with pharma, and to really bring together what are two fairly different types of organizations The other area that uh, I think we're going to see uh, some interesting potential opportunity around is in the digital health startup world. From my perspective, I think the digital health industry is really starting to mature. We're moving away from the focus on health and wellness apps and beginning to see more and more digital health startups that actually have an abundance of data. And the importance of data and the importance of validating digital health solutions is becoming more broadly accepted across the industry. We even have organizations like Node Health that are shining a light on the importance of data for digital health success. And I think the importance and value of clinical grade digital health companies is becoming more apparent. Venture capitalists are focusing more on clinical grade diagnostic opportunities. And I think in the future, personalized medicine will involve more digital health companion diagnostic companies. In looking at where the digital health startup industry is going, so from the FDA's perspective, Scott Gottlieb was really a leader in starting to put in place a process that was friendly to the startups. Now, Scott Gottlieb left the FDA, but it looks like his legacy of supporting digital health innovation is going to live on, and and that's really exciting for the industry. I think 2020 will be the year that more startups pursue approval by the FDA. And getting FDA approval seems like a really big hurdle to a lot of digital health startups. It can confer tremendous validity. And I think we're going to see more 
digital health startups stepping up and saying, I want to be approved by the FDA. Even if it's not required, I know how beneficial it is. I think that digital health companies will recognize that the FDA approval is really a differentiator and it's very hard to get reimbursement without FDA approval. I think in 2020, we're going to see the second wave, probably, hopefully, considerably larger of digital health companies that announce that they have gotten FDA approval. I think in 2020, there'll be a lot of growth and job opportunities for consulting firms that can advise uh, digital health startups on how to navigate the FDA. Obviously, that requires a certain level of expertise, so people can't just jump into that area very easily. But I do think that there'll be more jobs in digital health startups that really are offering uh, clinical-grade solutions. So folks, obviously, that have experience with data and data scientists will continue to be in very high demand, not just in providers and pharmaceutical companies, but also in digital health companies as they really focus on the need for creating data that validates their solutions. My name is Joe Grundy. I'm a healthcare transformation strategy consultant at Grundy Consulting. So one area of promise is the the rise, the organic growth of the direct primary care model, which has taken place over the past 10 years or so, and the organic interest of healthcare purchasers like employers and patients towards that concept because they are actively seeking alternatives to fee-for-service medicine and pass-through costs. One of the unique things about direct primary care is that it is a grassroots movement led by physicians and patients across the nation. However, companies like Boeing, Microsoft, and others have all tapped into this, are seeing the dynamism and the ability to, A, improve the quality of care that their beneficiaries receive, and B, lower the total cost of care. And in response, you see companies like Iora Health really finding their legs and growing to improve direct management of care for patients in an employed setting. The other area that I think is the most promising is a broader and perhaps more taboo conversation that we're beginning to see percolating now, which is questioning the very validity of our understanding of quote unquote quality in healthcare. So every large scale value-based initiative pegs outcomes and performance to industry accepted metrics and benchmarks. But the problem is that we have very little reason to put faith in those measures. If we define value as quality plus outcomes over cost, then we are, as an industry, doomed to fail unless we get a better understanding of what quality actually entails. So in 2017, the Congressional Budget Office released an analysis that of the current kind of evaluation system, and their report findings are fair damning. Quote, the current set of quality measures cannot evaluate various complex clinical decision-making and processes. Existing measures also cannot assess physicians' ability to manage patients with multiple chronic conditions, nor can they capture other aspects of care, such as providers' technical proficiencies. End quote. If you can't measure the quality of care that's being delivered to patients, and we rely on a, a definition of value that is built on that understanding of quality, then we are all doomed. Right. So the promise is that we are seeing small organizations like the Laird Green Center and academic health centers that are coming up with alternative concepts for value that will have huge ramifications for the broader system. And we see health IT companies, the more innovative ones, pegging into these conversations as well, saying, okay, so if we can help our purchasers, be it employers or be it healthcare plans, get an alternative understanding of what value is maybe we can move the needle in a way that the traditional 
ECQM measure set has been has not been able to help us do so far. If you can tap into one of these new companies that are willing to consider an alternative perspective, that is a, a foot into the future. My name is uh, Adrian Rubstein. I'm uh, an innovation manager from the medical department at Merck. There's uh, one feature for AI that is pretty amazing right now, and a lot of companies are using right now, that is for, for like, diagnosis. There's one company from Israel that is called Zebra. Uh, right now, I think they're working with Cambridge uh, University, and they have a lot of AI put in place for uh, ER emergency. In ER, every minute counts. So if you have to do an MRI or a tomography or whatever, if you go to a radiology expert, it's going to take a, a maybe one hour or something like that. And using AI, it's going to take five minutes. And there's a lot of, of other companies doing that. Right now, AI has a lot of promise and it's going to have a huge impact in the next years. The other, the other one that is going to have a, a huge impact right now, a new technology that is called CRISPR. CRISPR is a technology for gene edit, editing. Right now, they're moving to human trials. So if you have a disease, like you have a gene and you have a problem with the gene, you have a, a scissors that goes into the cell, catch the DNA, and they just put the new gene sequence that is the, the ones that you should have for be healthy. To give you a, a quick example, uh, you have a, a clinical trial right now for a company that is called Vertex, and they're doing a trial for beta thalassemia. Beta thalassemia, it's a blood disease. You can use this technology to cut the, these DNA sequences and put uh, the healthy one in place. This technology is amazing, but they're coming for the patient maybe in, in five or 10 years. But it's going to make a huge revolution because there are a lot of diseases right now. They don't have any cure. This technology could be available for giving a solution for these uh, diseases. There's another thing that it's called virtual reality, augmented reality, and what it's called mixed reality. I know that a lot of people know what it's uh, VR and ER right now, but what I wanted to come to the attention is because when you go to a, to a surgery, the physician first has to look all the images and then goes to the, to the surgery place and make all the incisions. You know, they have a lot of cameras and so on, but they lack the real-time information on what is going on. One company that is called Lake Assistant and Novarad, that it's just got FDA clearance with a physician. They're going to have like a glasses to look in the real time what is going on. Through the lens, the surgeon is going to see the, all the previous MRI and CT scan information for the patient. And also they will see in real time what is going on with the patient and they can monitor all the heartbeat and the pressure and Hubble's information in real time so they don't distract in the middle of the surgery. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.